Code Fun Podcast Network. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain. Note, this podcast will include a discussion of a COVID-19 dataset. The data includes cases and deaths due to this pandemic. Although we'll be discussing data, not the disease, we wanted to note the seriousness of this global pandemic and its impact to all. We hope you all stay safe and healthy. Hello and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source software for the long term. Who are we? How did we get here? What are we doing? Why is the console not showing my error? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Today we have a few panelists on. We have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. Justin Dorfman. Hello, hello. And you also have me. Hello, everyone. And then we have two guests today. We have Gil Yehuda. Hello. And Cindy Wang. Hey. So both Gil and Cindy are joining us from some sort of combination of Yahoo slash Verizon Media. It's kind of unclear. Can you can you clear that up for me, Gil? What, what's going on there? Where, where are you coming from? So Cindy and I both work at a company called Verizon Media. Verizon Media is a subsidiary of Verizon. And Verizon Media is a combination of a bunch of companies, predominantly Yahoo and AOL. Both Cindy and I joined Yahoo. And you know Yahoo is still a thing and the marketplace. And we kind of have that confusion all the time. We're, we're kind of Yahoo employees. And we're also Verizon Media employees. We're both. Awesome. Okay, cool. And you work as the Senior Director for Product, right, Gil? I'm a uh, Senior Director, and I'm responsible for our open source program. And I work with Cindy, and she's a product manager. So do you manage everything for all of the open source for AOL and Yahoo and Verizon? Like, what sort of coverage do you have in your OSPO? Sure. So we have an OSPO, Open Source Program Office, and we're responsible for all the open source inbound and outbound interaction and, and publication and relationships across Verizon Media, which is basically Yahoo and AOL and a couple of other little things here and there, but it's predominantly Verizon Media. But we're also working with some folks at Verizon on a lot of their open source publications and activities as well. Less formally, they're a large company, so we're, we're working with some of Verizon's open source activities, but with all of Verizon Media's activities. Awesome. So how many open source projects do you have, you would say? Like how many repos, how many orgs are you managing? Oh, what wow. sort of goes on there? Let's see. We're currently, in terms of active repos, it's about 350 to 400. In terms of orgs, it's probably around 20, 20 orgs, some more active than others. What's Um, the most notable? The most notable? That's like picking your favorite child. Can't tell you the most. The most? (laughs) I have a favorite. (laughs) I mean, it switches day to day, but still. (laughs) Eric, what's your favorite? What's your favorite one of, of our of our projects? No, I think he has a favorite child. <laughs> oh, I'm just talking about my kids. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, the, listen, they range quite a bit. You know, we do a lot of work in, in big data. I mean, that seems to be like a, a big area of focus for us. So 
certainly the like the Hadoop ecosystem, the the larger Hadoop ecosystem, Storm and and Uzi yep. and Pig and Zookeeper and and a lot of those those technologies are a big thing for us. We also have a really interesting project, like a CI/CD framework called Screwdriver, uh, which is an open source project that we have that allows you to orchestrate and manage CI/CD at scale. We have stuff in the security sphere around uh, zero trust uh, authorization for containers. It's called Athens. We have stuff in in like big data search and AI, a project called Vespa, and then like literally a few hundred other projects that range from you know a couple people are into it to a lot of people are into it because of what they do. That's really cool. How how long has has the Ospo existed? How long have you been sort of in this role? I've been doing this for uh, ten years. The Yahoo Ospo has been around for for ten years. AOL had an OSPO and then they didn't have an OSPO and they kind of had an OSPO. Uh, but when we, when we merged together, we we brought it together and we just continue to do what we do. Uh, so it's been it's been a while. I mean, and before the OSPO, there was open source activity because, as you yep, know, yep. companies do open source even without OSPOs. They just do mm-hmm. open source better with OSPOs. One of your projects I want to dive into is the Yahoo Knowledge Graph COVID-19 project. Can you talk a bit about that? You know what? Let me ask Cindy to talk a little bit about yep. that because Cindy is is the star of that show. Well, I don't know about star, but so I am the product manager for a platform called Yahoo Knowledge Graph. As you, you probably all know, um, several companies in the world actually have their own knowledge graphs and Yahoo Knowledge Graph being one of them. I don't know if you want me to get, get into what Knowledge Graph is all about and how that relates to COVID-19. Sure. I, I don't know. So I'm curious. Okay. Okay. So Knowledge Graph is really a model that attempts, well, Knowledge Graph attempts to model the real world in terms of people, places, organizations, and things. And we call these things entities. The Knowledge Graph collects and then semantically understands the facts about these entities. And equally important, the relationship between uh, the entities. So when people think of knowledge graph, search, or more recently, assistance apps often are the first to come to mind, right? So when you search for an, an, a, a person, a place, any sort of the search immediately, you get a, a card on the site or in a, in, a, in a mobile phone, you get some sort of uh, structured data, right? Of that a person or place. And Knowledge Graph really helps provide rich information to users and, and, and helps answer questions. However, Knowledge Graph has been used in many other entertainment, sports, and financial apps that are not so obvious. Their underlying tech provide a lot of rich information. And perhaps lesser known to people who are outside the domain is that the formal structure of a Knowledge Graph, it's schema-based. And the formal structure of a knowledge graph lends itself quite well for efficient and unambiguous machine understanding. So people do a lot with machine learning on top of knowledge graph, right? So for instance, it enables entity linking in short content like a query or long content like a news article and even images and videos. Now, entity linking is really about recognizing a entity then linking it back to the graph. So at the time, well, let's not talk about open source yet. So I would say, how did we come to COVID-19? So there were, at the time, I think at the beginning of March, and there, there were other data sets in the market, and I think JHU being one of them, and Wikipedia, of course, offers a lot of the COVID-19 data. But it was hard to, for us to discern 
where the numbers came from. Were they coming from newspaper, from journalists, from video? Someone just said it or, you know, it's hard. So a part of the important attribute for knowledge graph is data provenance. Knowledge graph oftentimes comes from many, many different sources, up to thousands and uh, rates. So it's really important for us to keep a data provenance where the, the attribute or relationship or facts come from. So the first, uh, that always has been important to us. So our motivation really is to provide a data set that entirely from government sources. So we know exactly what the confirmed number comes from, where the death number comes from, right? When people question, so where did, I, did, did you get it from, a, from Andrew Cuomo directly? Or did you actually get it from New York State uh, websites, right? So yeah. we intended to provide a data set that was completely from the public source. Um, incidentally, most governments from the country level, state level, as well as county level, started providing data at the time. Yeah, I had a question about the data sets because I have a folder on my phone that has rt.live, John Hopkins, mm-hmm. LA Times, New York Times. And it's just like, there's little inconsistencies between the data sets. And my question to you, the expert, is why? Like, why is John Hopkins have one and rt.live has another and Yahoo has, uh, by the way, the Yahoo one has become my favorite one, not because you come on, but it's just, it just displays a lot better on mobile. So that's my confusion is I'm just like, oh, like I smile on one site and then I frown on the other, you know, I'm just like, please help me, Cindy. Yeah. Yeah. So we encounter the same thing, right? Because everyone provides slightly different data, sometimes quite a bit of different data. and. Our struggle was we, we did not know where the data came from. And it, in a broad, broad stroke, oftentimes people would say, this is from CDC, from ECDC or WHO or some other sources. But we looked into CDC data set and the ECDC data set. We couldn't find any of these numbers they were citing. So I, I honestly can't tell you where other sources got their data which was part of our struggle. And I would like to say, I got this number 1,235. This came from Virginia government site. And the site is www.blahblah, right? So that was my intent. You could always, if you're questioning the data and you're like, why did the number go up that much? You can find it yourself. You can go to the site yourself. So that was my intent. Now, in terms of, I could guess why the data sets were different. One is people use different sources, right? So a good example is in California, as a state, report their numbers for each county. Now, majority of the 58 counties within California also report their own data. The timing could be slightly different. And California government data comes from, they reported from hospital, like the death number comes from all the hospitals and the county death number comes from their own county. So they're all slightly different. It depends on where the data source comes from and people update data at different times of the day. So you could see one that's updated earlier versus the other. That makes so much sense. And thank you for explaining that because I thought I was going crazy. I was like, maybe I'm I'm not smart enough to understand these graphs. So thank you. 
Yeah, of course, of course. So to continue, one of the key tech component of a knowledge graph is data ingestion. So how do we get data into the knowledge graph, right? So being able to crawl structured and semi-structured data sources across the web and then extract the data and normalize data to a formal schema, that's what we are good at. Since most countries, like I said, since most countries and all U.S. states and some U.S. counties are providing COVID-19 data on their sites in a sort of semi-structured data format, we thought we could use our existing capabilities to, to get the data in, additionally with very solid provenance. So that's, that started our motivation. Has this resource been, has it been established as a, an authority? Uh, have you heard feedback or others pointing to this as the authoritative data source? It depends on who you're talking to, who you're talking about. I think um, people who are more a government official um, in a more public, I guess, public capacity like this set because it has the public provenance. Now, news is a whole different ballgame. No, I'm not a pro in using any in any shape or form, but I would say, guilt and correct me if I'm wrong, that news is a lot about scooping, right? There are a lot about, oh, we just hit a million, we just hit five million. That's far more important to them than did you get this specifically from this government source? What's your source, right? So our experience has been news for the most part doesn't emphasize on authoritativeness and people in more public capacity cares more. So for example, we, we get people running for offices asking for our data because it, it does have a providence to it. Let, let, let me chime in and, you know, as an observer to what Cindy and her team do, which, which is pretty amazing stuff. I mean, I've been watching their, their team and it's, I'm blown away by it. There's like two levels of complications with data that I'm observing is probably more because there's, there's always more to everything, but they're like these two levels that I see. There's one is the technical challenge of just getting the data, right? Like where did the data come from and was the data source updated? And if you have two sources and two different time zones and they report the data of today's data, well, they're two different time zones. So how do you reconcile that? Or if you have you know, a roll up of multiple counties into a state and you add the numbers of the counties and they're different than the numbers of the state. Well, which one do you use? You know, it's like, do you do the math or was there an incorrect? And actually Cindy's team found this like really interesting stuff by in their data uh, cleanup algorithm with one county that had like, I don't know, like more, more cases reported than, than people living in the county. It was like one of these, like, no, that must've been, that was a mistake. Like that's a fat finger, whatever that, that can't be right. You know? So let's really look at the data critically. But then there's this other element, which is, I don't know, maybe it's the political nature of data. It's hard to, I mean, I don't want to, maybe that's, I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, there are some incentives for certain organizations to report a higher number because maybe they get, you know, more federal funding or, or some, or there's something in it for them by making the number look large. And then there's just like, there'll be an incentive for some entities to report a smaller number. Like, you know, they don't want to hurt their tourism business, right? So you have this ambiguity, which in some cases it comes like presumed cases or a death that is presumed to be of COVID-19, but we didn't do a test. But the doctor says, you know, so from a data, from a data scientist perspective, how do you, 
how do you declare that, right? Do you, do you add that because somebody presumes it to be? Do you say, here's a presumed number? See, it, and you get to this level of detail that from the data scientists and, and Cindy's team of like amazing data wonks, they're like, well, let's understand what this entity really is and make sure that we're classifying it accurately. You then go to the news and like, they just want to say the number a million, right? That's like way too much context, way too much detail to get into the weeds because they have a soundbite, you know, and they just, they just have to say something good happened or something bad happened. And, and I guess all of the paddling that goes on under the surface of the water to collect that data and to be as accurate as you can, but also to connect it to the source so that you could investigate it. I think that gives us this, the humility that we don't really know what the right number is. Like we don't really know because there's all these different numbers and they're close, but no one knows. And at the same time, I think we feel really good that we've done the hard work to stand behind what we think is a, a good number to share. Like the number that that we would say, this is a number that we're proud to share because at least we can tell you what it is. Yeah, all the sources are behind it. Yeah, yeah. And if it doesn't add up, well, it's because, well, here are the sources and, and it didn't add up. Like I, I saw in one of the charts, a negative number yeah. of deaths one day. Wait, negative number of Oh my God. You know? I saw that too. And I was like, wait a minute, what is going on here? Yeah. So, so I, I can tell you exactly what happens. And like, we saw this in many different places. This is not just one, right? So often, you, you know how people scrutinize these numbers and people report in a hurry. They allocate to different counties, for example. One example is Manhattan has a lot of hospitals. So now you have other county people going to Manhattan hospitals and they die there, for example, right? So then do you count it towards Manhattan or count it towards the person who the official, well, his or her residence is, right? So there's a lot of numbers shifting. So then it would appear all of a sudden Manhattan has negative death numbers. And so day to day, there's quite a bit of the number shifting from county to county. And then of course, to Gil's point, there were also just um, fat fingers that happens. So it's not unique, actually, when you see the negative number we see quite often, especially at the county level, because there's a lot, lot of reshuffling. So my wife and I talk about this quite a bit, and, and you bring up an interesting point where there's financial incentivization to have the numbers look a certain way. What's been your experience or have you had any pushback? from people who are trying to massage the numbers in their favor. So here's the thing from an open source and knowledge product perspective, I think we just try to run a really clean, you know, operation. I know Cindy and our team of data scientists are data scientists who data experts who ingest data. They understand the semantic web right there, their, their experiences in what was called web 3.0, right? This whole semantic web of understanding schema and, and organizing things and structures that make things useful. And we're running a lot of this as an open source initiative, data set and API and access to it because we want to open it up and we believe in open source. But in terms of like the use and the pushback, I mean, that's a whole different group of folks. And that's really outside of, you know, outside of our area. But we observe. I mean, like, we're looking at the numbers, trying to square the numbers. And I think 
you know, when we see, oh, this is a weird thing. I wonder why. Is it a, an anomaly? Is it a correction? Is it a mistake? Is it, you know, just the way that data is messier than you think? I mean, we, we think of numbers as these the beautiful, perfect things, but the folks who spend their days looking at numbers and structuring knowledge work really hard to, to clean things up in a way that makes things useful. Yeah. yeah. Gil, sorry to interrupt. So I, I wanted to, you, you're absolutely right. Cause I really wanted to start by saying data is a really messy business, right? So even for data scientists, when you talk about machine learning, oftentimes people don't realize that they spend 80% of their effort in cleaning up the data rather than running our algorithm and training data. You know, the training set has to be clean. So they actually spend 80% of their effort in cleaning the data. With over 300 tools and warehouses, Segment connects your stack with one API and can get you up and running faster with our historical data replay feature. Segment is a customer data platform that helps companies harness first-party customer data. Their platform democratizes access to reliable data for all teams and offers a complete toolkit to standardize data collection, unify user records, and route customer data into any system where it's needed. More than 20,000 companies like Intuit, Hinge, Instacart, and Levi's use Segment to make real-time decisions, accelerate growth, and deliver compelling user experiences. For more information, visit segment.com. So one of the questions I have is that like, it's a really useful resource. It's one of several resources. It's great that it's open. It's great that you have provenance shown and that it's, I'm assuming it's written in RDF. All right, like there are ways for me to look at that. What I want to know is the code. Is, is there any code open source? Can people look at that? How can people get involved? What was that process like besides the data aspects? So, so, so I'll tell you the, the little story is that as this happened, Cindy came to the OSPO, to the open source program and said, you know, we have this data set. It's part of the knowledge graph, which is this much larger set of, you know, knowledge about all types of things, not COVID-19 data, but like, you know, actors and, and, and movies and, you know, baseball players and whatever, all, like all this knowledge that we have, but we also have this COVID-19 data set, but, you know, this should benefit the world. Like we shouldn't be the only one that has this. This is, this is our small way of giving the work that we're doing, making it as available as, as we can, because everyone should have access to it. I mean, we're doing all this work. It should be, it's not our work, right? It's, it's work that everyone, it, it's part of the world trust. And it's what we as, as a planet, as a humanity need. And we looked at this and said, that's really great. But, you know, data is hard to consume. You know, you put something in an RDF or a CSV or a JSON file, and you put it out there on GitHub and you say, there you go. Here's the data. Knock yourself out. Most people aren't going to really know what to do with that in a meaningful way. In and of itself, yes, it's helpful, but it's not really helpful. So what we did is we reached in to some teams uh, within the company and, and said, wait a second, we, we do a lot with data. In addition, like we, we have a lot of these data experts that deal with you know, financial reporting data and ad click data and user data and mail data. Like we actually have a lot of people in the company that are pretty good at this. I wonder if we can get some of their time to help us. So we reached out to a team that we have in Champaign, Illinois, our data platform team. They're one of many. They're like an awesome group of folks. And they've already open sourced a whole bunch of things like Elide and Navi and a bunch of tools that we have that they've open sourced that help folks build APIs around data and build uh, visualizations around data. So we tapped into them and said, hey, we have this project. Cindy and our team are working on this data set. 
would you be willing to take the existing open source projects that you have and create a version of them that would be, you know, useful for people who wanted to ingest the COVID-19 data set? Can you give us an API that allows us to, to call it and to do something useful with it? And can you give us a visualization that allows us to display it? And they're like, absolutely. I mean, if this is something we can do, we'll do it. Oh, by the way, it's all going to have to be open source, right? Because we want to make sure that, well, we believe in open source. We want to make sure that it's available. We're not, you know, we're not monetizing it. We're looking to, to make it available. And we want people to contribute to it and to find ways that they can add their own information if they have access to it or their own visualizations, things that we wouldn't have thought about. So the data set is available, and that's, you know, Cindy's team. The API is available and that associated with it, and that's all open source. And we have a visualization like a dashboard that maps onto a world map. And we actually reached in to the Verizon folks at the Verizon Location Technologies team. They helped us with just like the map tiles, you know, so that the visualization is good. But you know, you could use you could use open source versions as well if you wanted to build, um, let's say, a local mapping. To then take the our data set that we're making available with, let's say, your own data that you might have of, you know, restaurant activity, or if you wanted to do some sort of a mashup of some activity relative to data, to then do your own analysis as to, you know, is my county doing a good thing with respect to its open up plan? Or what is the effect of people going to the beach? Or what is the effect of this activity? Can I mash that with the data? All that code is available. On, on, you'll have the links uh, with the show. All that code's available on our API data and dashboard for people to fork, create their own, and to work with us, sharing some of their ideas with us, because we'd love to feature that too. Awesome. Did you have any pushback from making any of this stuff open? From like management? No, no. They're like, awesome. when, <laughs> yeah, when we mentioned this, we got like, make sure this happens and do it quickly. Our CEO loves it. Our CTO awesome. loves it. Everyone loved it. Now, you know, we did make sure to like dot the I's and cross the T's and we did go through because we're a professional program and we spoke with yeah. our legal yeah. folks and we wanted to make sure that we were all good with respect to data rights and all good with respect to privacy and all good with respect to, you know, the open source licenses and, you know, that we're doing things properly. We also, you know, work with the folks who do our news, you know, because we're also a news service and we provide this data, you know, as, as a new service and said, by the way, we're going to be giving this stuff away, you know, so if somebody else wants to set up a new service that does this, that's cool too, because we're not here to restrict access to the news and funnel it to what we're here to, to share what we can and collectively create tools. So yeah, we did not get any pushback. In fact, we got a lot of support and we assembled a team probably, I think at its, at its height, we had about 35 or 40 people on the Slack channel because we had the data folks, the API folks. We had a designer. One of the design teams said, hey, we'll throw a designer on it, you know, for the visualization so that it looks nice. We had a bunch of folks. We call them paranoids. They're our information security team. Uh, we lovingly call them the paranoids. <laughs> That's their job, right? Their job is to be paranoids. And they're like, okay, we ha- like, what can go wrong? Can somebody DDoS us? Can somebody use this in a malicious way? Let's make sure that we've thought about that because we're trying to do something good, but we have this team of folks who's, you know, they're sort of programmed to say, okay, let's think about where is this being uh, hosted and how are we doing it? And, and they helped us quite a bit. 
So we, we got, yeah, it was a lot of support. And, you know, I'll add one other thing. In addition to this generally getting support, this wasn't our first time doing something for COVID-19 data in open source. This was actually our second project. We had a few weeks before, right when COVID-19 was becoming a, I don't know, a thing in the United States, and it was becoming more relevant for, for the folks here. We had a team in Europe that built out um, a COVID-19 search engine that indexed a whole bunch, like 45,000 science articles on COVID-19 and SARS, SARS-1, SARS-2, like all of the related viruses and, and illnesses to provide a, like a vertical index on this stuff so you can easily find or more easily find research papers for uh, medical researchers and scientists to come up with like, oh, what's the effect of, you know, what's the effect of blood type or what's the effect of this particular medication and how would it affect in SARS and what do we know about this so that we could. So we basically took our search and AI team and said, what can, you know, what can you guys do? We published that too. And again, our CEO, our CTO, everyone in the C-level were all over it. We should share a link uh, in the show. It's Vespa. Uh, Vespa Engine is the name of the technology. It's an open source search and, and serving technology, but there's a certain a specific engine around COVID-19 data. All that's open source also, and that data set and the search technology around that uh, we made available because, again, we, you know, we're going to do whatever we can to contribute something that does help. Which is great, then. Thank you so much. I'm curious. There's been a lot of projects I've seen which have had very quick traction and done a lot of great work. This is one of them, clearly. And it's great to, to see all this goodwill funnel into, okay, let's get a map up. What are, have you thought about long-term plans for how, how you sustain this work and how it's going to go forward and you know, what teams will be on it? And is it just open source in the sense of like, in a year, will it be abandonware? I mean, what are you doing to shore that up? That's an awesome question, and it's a hard question because you know we face this with all of our projects. You know, whenever yeah. we launch something, we try to predict its long-term viability. And in this particular case, I think we came in to the COVID nineteen situation really not knowing what the end is. Like, you know, for a big data project, you say, okay, well, big data isn't going away. Pandemics, we hope, do go away. Like, you know, we, we kind of hope to get on the other side of this and all this stuff. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if all this was abandoned? Where I mean, oh my God, like in a certain, like, ironic sense, I would love this to not have to be uh, a thing. Yep. Uh, okay. But seriously, this is a, a real thing. Our teams are still working on it. We try really hard not to put things out there and walk away. You know, sometimes that happens. Sometimes there are projects that, that don't resonate and you know we try and it doesn't work but with these we're actually sustaining as much as we can and encouraging participation if more people participate i think we'll have a better chance of keeping this going in not just from a longer term perspective but also a wider usage perspective and expanding its scope and, and impact you know even if it remains sort of a smaller project that a couple people know and, and love but by and large, it's not like hitting the headlines all the time. We're still working on it because the work not only helps the teams and, and the efforts that we're doing as a business, it's also something that you know, we find like we're leveraging other insights from it. You know, we're using this internally. It's not just 
put it out there and see if anyone likes it. And if not, we throw, you know, we walk away. But we care about this. This is, you know, we're in the business of managing and understanding data and its impact and meaning to us because it has impact to us. So do you and Cindy have plans to onboard people from the community who are interested in the data, who are helping out so that they also become maintainers? So it's not just a Yahoo only project internally? Um, so add to what you uh, just said that part of the beauty of using existing knowledge graph components, tech components, is that we automate most of it as much as possible. So we build a dashboard to track the data quality. So we don't actually have to look at it all the time. It gives us warning when, for example, the, the number of deaths went down or when something increased too much. So all these things are automated now. So that provides a longevity to the project. Because if we have to manually having people look at this all the time, that is, you know, it, it could be at some point not sustainable, right? But because we are automating most of it, I would say probably 90, 90 to 95% of it. Currently, we don't, from the data perspective, we don't spend a whole lot of resource every day to look at these look at the numbers. I'd like to take a step back real quick, if that's okay, Gil, and ask you a follow-up question on what you said. You said you're also using these tools internally. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on how you're using those? Sure. Actually, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass that to Cindy a little bit because, Cindy, you're a little closer to the Fantastic. situation. Yeah. Of, you know, not the tools for COVID-19, but also the tools for the knowledge graph that, you know, are some of our internal graphs as well. Right. Oh, yeah, sure. So for COVID-19 data, obviously news uses it and search uses it. And there are other places, for example, I didn't really think about weather app uses it. Weather would say, hey, do you want to opt in to know whether you should go outside or not, for example, right? So we, we give the very local, highly localized numbers for the city level sometimes at the zip code level. So you would know how safe it is in your, in your area. But clearly there are people who don't care, but <laughs> you know, that's a, a source to provide people. At least they know what their actions can be, right? So that's from the COVID-19 perspective. Oh, the other thing that people internally use this to p- provide business planning. Is it safe for me to add people in this state? And what does it look like, right? So, if, for example, you look at some states now after opening, the number went shot up, the numbers shot up, right? So, is it concerning from business planning perspective? Perhaps. So, this is also being used for business decisions. Was there any questions or concerns about licensing the open source? And is, are people allowed to build commercial applications on top of this data? Yes. yes. We did quite a bit of due diligence uh, on this because... We care about open source and we care about open data and licensing and doing it right. We worked very heavily. We were very closely, I should say, with our, with our legal team. We made sure that all the data that we're providing is data that is licensed to be provided and shared. And what we did is we provided it under a Creative Commons non-commercial license. But to your question, Eric, could somebody use it commercially? Yes. See, what we wanted to do is we didn't want to restrict commercial use but we also didn't want to have commercial use that we didn't know about. So we created this sort of setup. And this is like, it's a need in open source and there isn't an easy way to do it. And this is how we came up with it. But we said, listen, it's Creative Commons, non-commercial, but here's this form. And if you key in your name in the form and send us a note, let us know what you want to do. 
Like 99.999% of the time, we're going to say, absolutely, yes, by all means, do it. Thank you for letting us know what you're trying to do. We'd like to interact, maybe track, find out what we can do to help, see if there's anything we can do to work with you. At least now we know that you are doing it. So by contacting us, you will most likely get a Creative Commons BY license and just use the data even for commercial purposes. But at least we knew about you. Whereas if we were to have licensed it that way at front, then we wouldn't have that access point and then just touch base to find out what people are doing with it. So we're not here to restrict commercial use. We're a commercial entity. We love, you know, we, we totally understand the commercial entities want to use it. So we do support that. That's fantastic. You know, it's really interesting because I didn't realize how much business value this project had internally. So you said your CEO was on board, your CTO, your legal team. And it makes sense because, you know, not only are, you know, Yahoo News competes with New York Times, New York Times has their data set. So it's like, if you're not doing it, you're not doing it right in a way. Cause I mean, they are a large organization in terms of getting news out there. So is Yahoo News. So. When you were going through all that, it just like clicked in my head, like, oh, that's why everyone was on board. Well, you know, there's also there's also the, the fact that, and as Cindy mentioned, this is connected to our larger knowledge graph. And we use the knowledge graph for a whole bunch of other things, not just COVID-19 data, but for all types of data. We have like hundreds of millions of entities in this graph that represent, you know, billions of pieces of information. And we use across the company for, for all types of things like, you know, how the news stream is, is ordered and, you know, and, and what comes up in search results or that card that comes up so that when people search for X, they really meant Y. And if we understand that X is related to Y in a meaningful way, we can say, well, I know you search for X. Here's a couple of things that, you know, people also search for, like that ability to create an experience that anticipates and delights users of the internet so that, you know, they're not like, oh my gosh, why do I have to think like a computer? I just want to think like a person. The knowledge graph helps us create that kind of user experience. So we invest in the knowledge graph and, you know, because it's just good business, you know, and that I think that by attaching this project onto the existing knowledge graph project, we did a smart thing. Like we didn't run this as like this knockoff side thing, hope it goes away. Let's just get a couple of data people. But we attach this to an existing vehicle that we actually really care about. But we then carved this part out and said, make this part open source because this isn't proprietary. This is stuff that the world should have access to. Now, the rest of the stuff, you know, some of the stuff that makes, you know, some of our products a little, you know, we think better and easier to use than our competitors that we didn't open source. I've been listening to The Martian this morning as I've been driving around. It's one of my favorite books. Um, and I love the, the whole concept of when he was stuck there and humanity realized it, they all sort of came together to help out. And I think with, with COVID, there's a ton of goodwill in a very similar way. Like, this all sucks. Let's all come together. And even though multiple departments are doing the same sort of thing, like New York Times, Johns Hopkins, Yahoo, that's also really useful because you need to have independent oversight and you need to have multiple checks. Otherwise, you know, we just take the government for, for their word, which doesn't always work, as we've seen in cases like China, where like, it's pretty clear that's not how much you know, numbers are coming out. So thank you so much for doing this work. And it's also really interesting hearing how from the get-go, you thought about commercial uses and how you want to do some sort of dual licensing using Creative Commons instead of a traditional software license. And you thought about automation of data. 
and having people involved with the data side as well as with the code side. And then you thought about possibly throwing it off and, and having it become its own thing and how to make sure that other people can get involved so that it doesn't just sort of rot with when people have to move internally to other departments. So that's really awesome. Really clear that you're doing great work at the OSPO there, trying to make sure that this thing is sustained. And hopefully, this map will not be necessary soon. Unlikely, but let's, let's just hope. Unfortunately, I did wrap that up with a bow really intentionally because we do have to move on to Spotlight and then end because that's about the time we have today. So very quickly, before we go on to talk about our really cool projects and what we, what we want to shed light on, I want to know where can people get involved explicitly in this project? And how can people follow along? And if you like, how can they follow you? Sure. So best way to start off, github.com slash Yahoo has three links there. You'll find the COVID-19 data set. You're going to have the links in, in, the, in the program. But github.com slash Yahoo, I'll look for the COVID-19 projects. If you're a data person, if you're an API person, a visualization person, you can look at the code, fork it, interact with us. And the links are there with documentation. And that's for the COVID-19 data set. There's also github.com slash Vespa-engine. And that's the, the other project that I mentioned, the Vespa search engine. That's a great way to follow those projects. And they're documented with links for engineers to open issues and pull requests and, and for casual, you know, folks who weren't engineers but want to interact, do that. Following us, you can follow me uh, on Twitter, G Yehuda. I'm on LinkedIn and a couple of other of those sites. We have a YDN, the Yahoo Developer Network, uh, Twitter handle. You can follow us at, at YDN. But we also have podcasts and, and content blogs and, and stuff. So you can follow some of our other activities that come out of our program office. What am I missing? Anything else? I'm missing Cindy. Cindy, where can we follow you? I don't have a whole lot of presence other than LinkedIn. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I, I don't post much of, of anything. I'm, Gil does all my work. Um, cool. <laughs> That's great. All right. Now comes the fun part, Spotlight, where we get to talk about, well, it's all fun. It's all fun. Thank you so much. Where we talk about cool projects that have helped us out or that we want to shed light on. Really quickly, I want to shed light on Moment.js today just because they're amazing. They've been doing the Lord's work since 119731017. Really, really awesome being able to not worry about time zones. I worry about time zones everywhere else, like with schedule planning, but in my code, I don't have to bother because of Moment.js. So thank you so much. Eric Berry, what do you got for us? I just think that the time zones concern that you brought up is very appropriate for our Data is a Messy Business podcast. I agree with you. Time zones and naming things are the two hardest things in programming. For me, I have a pick or a, uh, a spotlight. I want to draw a spotlight to a project built by Jared White. He started this project earlier this year. It's called Bridgetown. And what it is, is an updated version of Jekyll that really allows you to utilize a lot of the new technologies that we have today. Jekyll's been around forever. It's been a favorite for a lot of developers to build static websites with. I believe the Ember, the Ember website is built with Jekyll. GitHub has you know, brought it in under their umbrella. I'm, I've been converting our website from, from WordPress to Jekyll recently, and it's nice, but then I've, we found Bridgetown, and Bridgetown really is kind of like that missing piece that we needed. So uh, you can find it at uh, bridgetownrb.com. 
jekyll.com. Awesome. I will look into that. I love Jekyll, but sometimes it's annoying. Justin, you got anything? Yes. First, I would like to thank Ashley Wolf for putting this whole thing together. Really, really appreciate it. She's in the OSPO with Gil and she's just a really, really great person. My next thing is it's a browser extension. It's not open source, but it's called Read Aloud and it's a text-to-speech voice reader for Chrome and Firefox. I read a lot of grant proposals for for Moss and uh, sometimes at the end of the day, I just can't read. I just need to listen to it and it just helps me just get things done when I'm like burnt out. So I highly recommend you looking at it. Thank you. Gil, you got anything? Yeah, I do. It's this project that actually had a relationship with the COVID-19 data project, but in a way that most people wouldn't have even known that was there. It's called Denali. It's at denali.design, and it's an open source framework for creating responsive web pages, mobile apps. It's basically like a bunch of CSS scripts. So we published it. So sorry, a little self-focused there, but an awesome team of engineers in our company published this because we realized that open source projects are really great, but they don't always look great, you know, and getting a user interface on open source projects is kind of hard. So we took our design language that we use internally for our internal corporate apps that that our platforms teams build. And we said, you know what, we're going to make this open source. So anyone who wants to build a really cool looking app could use this framework that works with a whole bunch of well-known CSS and JavaScript frameworks. And and it's battle-tested. It's written by a group of really awesome designers. And one of the designers on this team helped us with the dashboard that we have on our visualization project. So just a shout out to, you know, projects that are really awesome are awesome because they get all types of people together that each contribute their gifts. And, you know, the designers that we have contributed their gift to our project and made this available at Denali.design. Again, open source. If you're doing anything in open source that requires a user interface and you want it to look awesome, check this out because I think it will really help you. Well, thank you so much, everyone. And thank you for being on this podcast, Gil and Cindy. It was really great to hear about the great work you've been doing. And keep it up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, SG-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain.